Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Zara Kasamali Escobar, and I'm a clinical pharmacist in infectious diseases at UW Medicine Valley Medical Center and an associate medical director of the University of Washington Tele-Antimicrobial Stewardship Program in Seattle, Washington. Today on Breakpoints, uh, along with our expert panelists, we'll be hashing out our experience at ID Week 2021. So first of all, let me introduce them. First up, we have Jillian Hayes. Dr. Hayes is an infectious diseases clinical pharmacy specialist at Advent Health Orlando. She obtained her doctor of pharmacy degree from the University of South Carolina, then completed her PGY-1 and PGY-2 ID pharmacy residencies at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Jillian is an active member of SIDP and the ACCP ID PRN. She is also the 2022 vice chair of the SIDP Publications and Podcast Committee. So, Breakpoints fam, if you have been paying attention to the credits, you've probably heard Jillian's name a lot for producing these podcasts, but now you'll also have the fortune of hearing her voice as a new Breakpoints host. In addition to podcasting, Jillian's interests include antimicrobial stewardship in transitions of care, incorporation of trainees into antimicrobial stewardship, resident wellness and mentoring, and preventing the prescribing of septinir whenever possible. Welcome, Jillian. Thank you so much, Zara. Uh, as someone who considers herself somewhat of an unofficial hype woman of the pod, I'm really thrilled to be here not only today, but to continue to serve the Pubs and Pods Committee as the vice chair uh, this year. Fantastic. Our next guest is Timothy Gauthier. Dr. Gauthier obtained a Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Northeastern University School of Pharmacy in 2008 then completed two years of pharmacy residency at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, Florida to specialize in infectious diseases. He spent his first decade as an ID pharmacist working as faculty at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale and for the Miami VA healthcare system. He is currently the Antimicrobial Stewardship Clinical Program Manager and PGY2 ID Residency Program Director for Baptist Health South Florida which is a huge program with 10 hospitals, two cancer centers, 50 plus outpatient centers across South Florida. Wow. He is an active member of SIDP and the ACCP IDPRN, and he is best known in the profession of pharmacy for his social media presence. You may know him from Twitter as at ID Stewardship and as editor-in-chief of www.idstewardship.com and uh, learnantibiotics.com, which garner over 1 million worldwide page views annually. So although I'm not worthy, welcome, Tim. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much. Great. Um, so funny thing, as we get started, Tim and I actually met at an ID week in San Diego. Um, in like, I don't know, what was it, Tim, like 2012, something like that. It was a couple years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so I want to kind of start off and talk about that and casual encounters with old and new friends, uh, former and future colleagues just don't really happen in the virtual meeting space. And I want to start off by asking both of you, how did the experience of this meetings go for you? So this was actually somehow my first virtual conference experience during the pandemic, uh, outside of doing a little bit of recruiting during ASHP mid-year last year. So once I got the hang of navigating the virtual platform, which did take just a couple of hiccups, um, I found the logistics really manageable. Uh, but I will admit that one of my favorite parts of conferences is interacting with uh, new folks and reuniting with people you haven't seen in a while. So I found myself pretty quickly noticing co-residents, what have you, answering questions or asking questions in the chat and texting back and forth with them to still get a little bit of that community feel throughout the meeting. Uh, so while those interactions don't quite hold a candle to the real in-person meetings uh, of the past and hopefully of the future, uh, you know, there were moments of, of that as well. Um, I will say one of the benefits of virtual meetings that I've noticed is the amount of awesome information available at these conferences can be a little bit overwhelming when you're there. So having sort of a bird's eye view, being able to sift through the content as well as rewatch it a couple of times has been beneficial. Yeah, totally agree. What about you, Tim? Yeah, I haven't had a lot of experience with the virtual conferences. Uh, I thought it was really cool that I was able to put my ear pod in my ear and, and do other work while I was listening in and then kind of stop and take a break and walk around. 
um, and my watch wouldn't beep at me then, which it usually does every hour telling me to stand up as I think many listeners might be able to relate to with their Apple watches. Um, and then also just going to grab lunch uh, every day, I was having my ear pod in and listening to updates about COVID-19, uh, as well as the vaccinations and antimicrobial stewardship. So I, I love the flexibility that it, it offered. But I do, I will have to say that, you know, meeting people in person, especially people that you've never met, and that, you know, you've read their papers, you've, you've heard about them, you've seen them maybe on social media. I think that's an invaluable opportunity that I missed. Uh, absolutely. I totally agree. And I also like just really, um, it brings me, what is it called? Disproportionate joy. Like when you're at an escalator at a meeting and you see someone, you know, like going down the desk, down escalator, you see it all the time at, at ID week conferences, people seeing they, people they know, but they're like traveling past each other. Um, I love that kind of stuff or even sitting next to somebody during a session and, and, um, just that, that in-person interaction is just totally, um, not present in these virtual meetings. Although I, I agree with you, Jillian, that I really liked the chat feature and watching people comment, especially in the pre-recorded comment content, watching the speakers comment on themselves um, was also like very uh, unique to the virtual setting. So speaking of the virtual world, uh, there were some sessions on social media this year. Um, Jillian, do you want to start us off and tell us about them? Oh, and wait, before we get into that, I do want to point out that um, we are going to focus this, this episode of Breakpoints. You know, we've done these episodes talking about ID Week in the past. Um, shout out to Aaron McCreary and Ryan Shields and their beautiful um, reviews of ID Week. But this time, Tim, Jillian and I are really going to focus on some sessions that we learned a lot from that struck us as interesting um, and that are related a lot more towards social media and uh, to antimicrobial stewardship. So with that said, Jillian, um, do you want to start us off talking about some of the social media sessions that you saw or one of them at least? Absolutely. Uh, the first session that we'll start by rehashing is called the impact of social media on social determinants of health during a pandemic. Uh, I know this can be a heck of a topic and our listeners may have found themselves at all ends of the spectrum with social media throughout the pandemic. I know for me personally, it's been everywhere from totally removing the apps from my phone to preserve a little bit of sanity, all the way to getting lost in the scroll and trying to keep up, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, it felt like you would go to sleep and miss at least 18 key updates that would all be waiting for you on Twitter the next morning. Uh, so the purpose of this session was to describe the impact and evolution of social media during the pandemic and how digital communications can address social determinants of health. I found it to be enlightening, engaging, and empowering, and the panel was full of all-star speakers. First up was Dr. Angela Rasmussen, who is an academic virologist working at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Research Organization International Vaccine Center. Uh, she began by outlining the importance of fighting the good fight on social media with the somber reminder that misinformation isn't just something that makes our blood pressure spike occasionally, it literally hurts people and results in bad outcomes for patients. She presented some compelling data that was, interestingly enough, published back in 2018, which feels like prehistoric times at this point, but these are pre-pandemic data. This study showed that false information on social media is 70% more likely to spread, secondary to the emotions that are associated with it, and these are feelings like surprise, disgust, fear, and anger, versus content that's related to positive emotions like anticipation, joy, or trust. This is something that I think a lot of us may have learned over the past two years. You know, we would agree that this is true. However, seeing that number and the fact that this has actually been studied was a little bit staggering. It wasn't all bad news, though, and Dr. Rasmussen did a great job of staying out of the doom and gloom and keeping us sort of empowered with next steps uh, and reminding us why this really is good work to be on Twitter, um, you know, covering what is actually true science. She reviewed some data published in Nature Medicine analyzing COVID-19 vaccine acceptance across 15 survey samples covering 10 low and middle income countries in Asia, Africa, South America, Russia, as well as the United States. This study found that healthcare workers are actually more trusted entities than the government or ministries of health. And when you combine this with the fact that the primary stated reason for any sort of hesitance around the vaccine uh, being side effects and safety concerns, 
this again, just enforces what an avenue we have as healthcare workers. And I think especially pharmacists who are on the front lines, especially with vaccine efforts uh, that we can play and can make an impact. She also shed some light on the fact that this is actually also why scientists are often getting attacked. Uh, and something that I didn't realize was how much money and profitability was involved in anti-science propaganda. Uh, she showed us, you know, between selling medical services, books, movies, even fake vaccine cards, this has become a profitable industry, unfortunately. And so a lot of this is something that uh, money is something that's motivating a lot of this. This is also something that once I thought about it made a lot of sense to me, but it really blew my mind how much was being driven sort of by the almighty dollar, especially when you consider this isn't a uniquely American problem and this pandemic is a global marketplace. She concluded her session with four distinct calls to action, correct misinformation when you see it, report propaganda, attempt to deplatform individuals by reporting their propaganda, and then empower people with information instead. Her session aligns directly with the information covered by Imrad Ahmed, who is the CEO for the Center of Countering Digital Hate. I will admit, I didn't know that there was an entire center for countering digital hate, which was crazy enough to begin with, um, but he was a really awesome resource and actually noted that the center decided to become involved in the anti-vaccine movement because it is unfortunately so similar to hate acts that they've seen and the tactics are really similar um, to hate groups and things like that that they've seen in years past. He began by educating us on the algorithm, which was kind of blowing my mind the entire time because before this, I'm not gonna lie, I didn't give a lot of daily thought to the algorithm. I knew it was kind of a nebulous concept, maybe heard some influencers talk about it when they were trying to sell me things on their Instagram stories. Um, however, the pandemic has sort of become this ultimate social experiment because so much of the information that we see on a daily basis is actually controlled by this algorithm. He called it an information ecosystem, which was a cool phrase and also a very good visual. He also emphasized that the prerogative of these individuals is first and foremost money, not only the people that are using the platform for sort of anti-science, anti-vaccine movements, but also the platform's founders. They want you to use the platform. And so if negative emotions and content that is associated with that is what keeps you coming back, they're going to want to perpetuate that content. The second concept to keep in mind when we come with sort of, when we think of rather sort of feeding the algorithm is attention. The attraction that you could go viral with just one tweet or one interaction is something that keeps people coming back. He summarized the argument that people that are sort of against science are using into three main messages. First being COVID isn't that dangerous. Second being vaccines aren't safe. And the third being, you can't trust doctors, pharmacists, and other public health professionals. So that's kind of what we're dealing with, an algorithm paying money to the founders of these apps and groups hoping to gain a large quantity of attention quickly. He, similar to Dr. Rasmussen, left us with some promising tools on how to change the algorithm. The first tip that he gave us is do not respond directly to or retweet any sort of mis or disinformation. So if you were to quote tweet something, even to disagree with it, that actually perpetuates uh, that content being seen by more people and feeds into the algorithm. So uh, instead, he encourages us to create content of our own in response, targeting the content at debunking those three main myths. So showing the fact that COVID is indeed very dangerous, showing the hope behind vaccines, and doing things to develop trust as a healthcare professional. He also encourages folks to ignore, block, and report any sort of trolls. Uh, he specifically emphasized not feeding the trolls, which I thought, again, was a great metaphor here. Uh, and thirdly, emphasized taking time for mental health. Uh, he recommended that everyone turn notifications off of their phone and created a pretty hysterical mental image by saying, you would never let someone just barge into your office while you're working and start screaming at you. So don't let people do that on Twitter by having notifications on your phone every time somebody left some sort of mean tweet. Before we get into the second half of the session, I did want to ask, uh, my internet prowess is such that I haven't had a ton of direct run-ins with the algorithm or trolls. Uh, Tim, do you have any other tips of the trade given your experience with producing online content? That's a, a great question and something I've uh, spent a lot of time dealing with. Uh, on the topic of trolls, when you come across them, block them and report them. Uh, those are the two main uh, ways to address it. I do find that the algorithms are responsive to that. And so when I see a posting about a fake herpes treatment 
or a fake COVID treatment that comes across uh, either my Facebook page or my Twitter feed, um, I do tend to alert the, the algorithm of it and it does tend to have an impact. Um, when it comes to the algorithm in general, uh, what I find is that they're all different and it's all ever changing. And so the way that Instagram works today versus how it used to work three, four or five years ago is, is very, very different. And so depending upon what you're trying to do or not do, um, you need to consider how the algorithm interplays into that. And I'll give you an example. Um, when we, we use Twitter, um, a tweet, the half-life is like five seconds or a minute. It really does not last very long. So if you want to try to reach a broad audience over a long period of time, you're just not going to probably do it on Twitter unless it really catches fire. Um, on Facebook, on the Facebook pages right now, if you post something, usually it won't be seen for several hours. And so there really isn't that rapid return. So if I want my primary post time to be, you know, 5 p.m., I might post it at like 3.30 p.m., knowing that it's going to kind of catch on closer to 5.30 as it goes through Facebook algorithms. And they try to, you know, promote content to you that's being paid for over the free things that I'm posting because I think you're actually interested in them. Um, and then finally, on Instagram, it's really a rapid return. So when I look at an Instagram post, I'll look at the number of likes per minute over about the first 10 to 20 minutes of the post, and I'll know how successful it's going to be. And I know that the algorithm is taking that into account in regards to how many people it's going to show it to. But that's for like an Instagram post. When it comes to Instagram, Instagram stories, that's completely different in how the algorithm works. And so even within the social media platforms, you find that the algorithm are, algorithms are different. Um, and also the trolls that may be lurking are different and have uh, different tactics. It's like bacteria and sites of infection it really depends where you're dealing with. Um, that's all, that's so fascinating, Tim. And I'm, and I'm in the same boat as Jillian. And I, um, joke that I just, I am like totally a grumpy old man and in a, a young female body because I am so tech averse a lot of times, um, one other thing I, I wanted to point out that I, I thought it was so interesting in that session, Jillian, was um, somebody had mentioned the uh, availability bias. So meaning having data that's available, people are biased that it's reliable data. So, and we're all, all surrounded by data. I think the quote was 79% um, of Americans have some kind of social media profile. And so just because they're getting a lot of information doesn't mean it's reliable information. Um, and I thought that that was really fascinating. And I'm, I'm very certain that I've fallen prey to the availability bias. And of course, the confirmation bias, which falls hand in hand with that, right? Which is you see something that you already kind of believed or seen before, and then it confirms that you, what you're, what you think is true. Um, and I thought those are just really interesting points to think about in social media and who you're following and what the algorithm is suggesting to you. Absolutely. That was Dr. Mati Lachwayo Davis who made those comments. And not only did she take time to walk through those two, uh, types of bias that I think we all fall prey to in one form or another, um, but also created uh, clarification between misinformation and disinformation, uh, which I think was an important clarification with misinformation, uh, meaning information that is, is not correct. However, disinformation is false information with the intent to mislead people. Uh, so clarifying uh, those two concepts as well as reviewing uh, those two types of bias that I think we've seen, uh, you know, definitely ourselves, maybe some loved ones, et cetera, fall, uh, fall victim to on, on the internet, especially with the fact that we can choose who we follow, which is um, just an interesting, interesting concept for sure. One of the things I've noticed is that as you interact with social media, the algorithms try to learn your intent, right? And so the content that you interact with, that you engage with, the, how long you view something for, um, what you share, what you like, that is all considered. And so if you are kind of going forward to look at, you know, JAMA and New England and CID, then it's going to show you things that, that are in line with that. But if you're also looking at, you know, basketball players and football players, and, you know, you're watching Joe Rogan's podcast and things like that, you're going to start to come across other content that starts to open up your circle for your overlap with these other areas. And so I also try to take that into account when I you know, interact on social media. And also when I talk to other people about getting started in social media is be really cognizant of, of how you're designing your engagement, because it's going to also influence what the algorithm is feeding back to you. And as we look at this world where all this crazy information is flying around, you know, we want to be there to have a voice for our profession and we want to be able to flag things so that the algorithm knows, hey, that's not appropriate. That's not accurate. 
um, but we also want to try to make sure we're narrating the feed so it's the information that we want to get. Absolutely. I think it's so fascinating that we're at the mercy of this giant, again, thing called the algorithm. But I think those are good tips just to keep in mind, especially because so much of that information, like you said, Zara is at our fingertips. Um, and so when you combine that with the ability to sort of continue to be fed information that's similar to the information you've already sought out, uh, that's how you get into those situations where you have those availability heuristics and confirmation bias as that double whammy. Speaking of algorithms and designing content, I think one person I know Jillian and I both follow, I'm sure Tim Tim does as well, is Dr. Kimberly Manning. Um, and somehow I didn't even realize she had a session at ID Week, and then Jillian and I were talking about this, so I went back and rewatched it. But Jillian, will you tell us um, about Dr. Kimberly Manning and, and the session and what she talked about too? Absolutely. Um, I will start with a disclaimer that I'm a total Kimberly Manning fangirl. I think she is just a remarkable human being. You want to talk about being in person at a conference and people that you would like love to meet or end up sitting next to. She is high on my list of moments where I would be just so honored to be in the same room as her. I think she's wonderful. Uh, I think everyone should follow her on Twitter. Um, and I think it's a total travesty that she's still not verified on Twitter. So at Twitter, if you're listening to breakpoints, fix that. Uh, maybe all of my, all 20 of my Twitter followers will get Dr. Manning verified. All right. Uh, let's see. So her session was aptly titled using storytelling through social media to build trust. Uh, and for any of our listeners who follow Dr. Manning, I think she tells stories within limited characters so, so well. Uh, she shared a quote by Brian Stevenson that said, stories help us get proximate. Um, and I think that that kind of summarizes her keen ability to capture the humanity in every single one of her stories. I feel like I learn something every time she tells a story. Uh, and I always leave also feeling challenged to continue to show empathy to people and learn the human being behind our patients every single time. Uh, she referenced both James Baldwin and Toni Morrison as her inspirations for telling stories that both come out of her experiences, as well as reflect stories that she would want to either hear or read. Uh, and Zara, you mentioned that 79% of Americans have a social media profile. Uh, she was one who shared that little tidbit. And it is just crazy when you think about um, how many people you really can reach on these platforms. Uh, she left us with some tips that I think are worth sharing about how to build trust with audiences on social media, as well as tell stories. Uh, she started by emphasizing what's your why. Um, she shared that she could aims to speak specifically about um, vaccine uptake in her community. Uh, she saw her community being somewhat misrepresented by the media as individuals who didn't trust the government or were believing in conspiracy theories. And based on what she was seeing every day when taking care of patients, she was like, wait a minute, that's not what's happening. You know, there's a lot of reasons going on. And so uh, starting with identifying your why and being able to keep that in mind was actually one of the ways that she also deals with um, trolls or people who she called were just plain annoying. Uh, she encouraged attendees to assume nothing, explain fully, and listen completely, as well as to think about who the person is outside of being a patient, uh, emphasizing that no question is stupid and continuing to address them without judgment. She had a great way of addressing people, even if they were being trolls or being annoying in her comments. And she said that she will typically reply, it sounds like you've thought about this a lot. If you change your mind, know that I'm here to talk about it. Uh, and I think that reply captures just how gracious and wonderful she is when dealing uh, with patients and people on the internet. Um, the last tip that I'll sort of leave us with uh, is acknowledging the slow yes. Uh, so not punishing people, not assuming, uh, really getting to know their reasons and celebrating someone saying yes to a vaccine. I think that's particularly relevant as we continue to encourage vaccine uptake, which feels arguably now more important than ever. Uh, so all in all, I really left this session feeling enlightened about the algorithm and even a little bit more empowered in my relationship with social media in general. Yeah, I, I I love that, Jillian. And 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 I agree with you. One of the things that she said was uh trust starts with trustworthiness, and trustworthiness starts with being a good listener. Um, and I thought that's so relevant, not only to a patient provider, um, but also as an antibiotic steward, because so much of us giving unsolicited advice is about does the person you're giving that unsolicited advice trust you? Um and so with that, I do want to talk a little bit more about influencing and Tim, because you're Kardashian level expert, 
this is the highest compliment I can give when it comes to this. Let's transition a little bit more into um, influencing and some of the sessions that talked about that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, when I saw Dr. Manning's um, uh, title, it, it, made, it reminded me of that quote, um, tell me a fact and I'll learn, tell me a truth and I'll believe, but tell me a story and it'll live in my heart forever. Um, and I, I think that's she's got it right when, when she's approaching it that way. And also the positive spin that she's putting on things and staying upbeat, I think is a really key uh, element. And that's why we're seeing her be very successful and, and why people like you and I love to follow her and see what she's up to. So speaking of influencing uh, people, Emily Heil uh, of, of University of Maryland, um, she put on a session titled How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, I really enjoyed this session and found myself listening much more closely than I had anticipated and also relating to every single word that came out of her mouth. Um, one of the things that she talked about was how she didn't become an infectious diseases pharmacist to give people unsolicited advice. And I've had this conversation at least six different times and not always with infectious diseases pharmacists, but with also infectious diseases physicians who are trying to work as part of the stewardship program and give feedback to those frontline providers that many times is not necessarily solicited. Um, Dr. Heil talked about how fear is a major influence of antibiotic prescribing. That's something I remember hearing from a lecture by Dr. Spellberg about five years ago. And, and you do see that a lot in practice where uh, folks are worried about the what if and a test that you take versus what you see in practice are totally different. And so um, there can be a disconnect in the moment versus the global conceptual thought of I want to protect antibiotics and not cause resistance, but my patient is in front of me. I need to do something. I like the tip that she gave about phrasing your recs to align with the goals of the person who you're talking to. So for example, if you're talking to a surgeon, identifying what's going to happen next in that surgical patient's course of care. Um, I think that's really a core element to engaging that person, getting their, into, uh, getting their attention, and then moving forward on to what is a rational plan for that individual that's accounting for the stakeholder's um, perspective. Another tip she said was to use the communication strategies like NAROS, which is covered in the IDSA um, core antimicrobial stewardship curriculum. NAROS is an acronym which stands for name the issue, ask for the reason, ask for the rationale with personal experience or add rationale with personal experience, orient to suggest management, work together with that person, and then set up a follow-up. And I think those types of simple strategies are really critical towards um, influencing people and winning friends in antimicrobial stewardship. And it really circles back to building trust with people because we need to work together as a team and we need to do that interdisciplinary accounting for what the priorities are for those other team members. Totally agree, Tim. And I think this, this really went hand in hand with what uh, Dr. Manning had said about trust and finding your why, like even when you talk to, like you said, you talk to a surgeon, they're worried about surgical site infections. So you, you find their why, and then you tailor how you communicate with them to what they're most concerned about, which makes so much sense. Um, so yeah, I totally agree with you. And I really saw how these really connect, these two sessions in particular connected so well to each other um, because the, the fundamentals of building trust and creating relationships, which is like handshake stewardship, is it doesn't matter if it's stewardship or if it's connecting with somebody on social media or making new friends. It's all the same communications things. Jillian, would you add anything on that session? I similarly, Tim, found myself sort of nodding along in a spiritual way. I felt like Emily was really capturing um, that day-to-day -day experience that so many of us have, uh, where maybe we found ourselves in some shoes that look a little different than what we anticipated uh, in terms of, you know, learning how to get creative when giving that sort of unsolicited advice. Um, she shared a study by Metley and colleagues from 2002 that uh, looked at a survey that went out to 400 physicians and 429 ID specialists, um, and it had them rank uh, ordering of antibiotic preferences for a hypothetical patient with CAP. Um, and long story short, what they found is that efficacy of the drug, severity of illness, and previous experience and knowledge about the drug were ranked highest, while the risk of contributing to something like resistance was ranked last. So um, really finding that why and understanding that we all agree in theory that we want to preserve antimicrobials, but when it comes down to it and you have a sick human being in front of you, um, that why is going to look a little different based off of of specialty based off of patient based off of where you are in the hospital. Um, so I think that that's something that definitely can't be, um, you know, understated about what we do. Uh, she also did mention uh, that she wants to study potentially the inclusion of emojis in uh, written and virtual communication, which I think would be 
the world's greatest study. I'm already trying to like brainstorm a title to send her that works out with the acronym emoji, because it would obviously have to be called the emoji trial. Um, so between that and her sharing that her stewardship program, not only has an acronym, but also a mascot, Scott, the Ascot mascot, who I've now seen on Twitter and is adorable. Um, I think are some, some ways to keep it fun so that we're not just, you know, the stewards calling with unsolicited advice, but also, um, remembering that at the end of the day, we're just working with other human beings. Um, you know, going back to what Dr. Manning sort of, uh, preaches within her storytelling. Another session that related to influence was a session put on by Dr. Julie Simjak. And it was about how to win friends and influence people and about communication with antimicrobial stewardship programs. Um, she talked about how navigating complex social cultural dynamics and the daily workplace is something that we need to be doing as antimicrobial stewards and that we can sometimes find conflict between professions. And historically, a lot of that comes between the antimicrobial stewardship pharmacy champion and maybe the, the physician champion of the antimicrobial stewardship program. However, nursing lab and other professions are also relevant to that conversation now. And so we need to be able to identify where we might see conflict between the different professions and how to um, come together and align towards a common goal. Uh, one of the things that she touched on was our professional identities and differences between people. And you know, antimicrobial stewardship programs are integrated everywhere. So if you're working in an outpatient dental clinic or an inpatient you know, surgical center, antimicrobial stewardship is relevant there. And so as stewards, we need to take these tools and take the research and the data to try to understand how to work with these different individuals have, who have different professional identities, um, yet where the stewardship program is just across the total landscape of healthcare. Um, she talks about the importance of trust and respect, which is something we've touched upon already. I think that is really critical when it comes to stewardship. Um, if you lose that trust, you, it really loses your ability to have that person's ear. And so that is something I hold uh, as, a very high level in regards to what my priorities are on a day-to-day -day basis as I develop relationships. Um, and then also what language you use, how you frame things and what strategies you employ. And so as we talk to people that maybe as, as a nurse versus a physician uh, versus a pharmacist, they may have uh, different interests in regards to how much detail they want and how much time they have to talk about those details. And so I think those are key elements towards communicating and influencing other people's. Um, she also talked about the three C's of antimicrobial stewardship, which include communication, context, and collaboration. And again, I think these simple tools are really important, especially for our new antimicrobial stewards. We need to teach them about the importance of trust. We need to teach them to use tools that are simple in order to touch all of the points that they need to touch as they make intervention, as they develop their program, and as they expand their program. So I thought this was a really great session. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. I think anytime um, that she's giving a talk, I will find myself in the audience. I always leave at least feeling validated and very seen uh, with the, the sort of social struggles of stewardship. Um, one of the studies that I found really interesting that she spoke about was the multi-site qualitative study to identify the attributes of effective communication, uh, where they interviewed both antimicrobial stewards and frontline providers. Uh, they found that 53% of providers felt positively about stewardship, 32-ish percent were mixed with about 15% feeling negatively. And the negative reasons I found so interesting, uh, it was said that they captured, uh, the negative parts of stewardship captured unpalatable trends in medicine. Those specific trends that she mentioned were prioritizing profits over patients, so making interventions that they felt were all about cost, uh, following cookbook medicine, or not understanding those times where the guidelines didn't quite account for the patient at hand. Uh, and again, viewing stewardship as somewhat of a threat to professional identity or autonomy, as well as sense of self. Um, so they felt like the goals of stewardship and the prescriber tended to be at odds. Um, and while I think it's easy sometimes as stewards to start to feel defensive, I could feel my shoulders rising and I had to put them back down. Uh, it's a really an area of opportunity about how we frame those communications. So absolutely tying directly back to what Dr. Heil was talking about as well as Dr. Manning, understanding your audience, understanding your why, and being able to be nimble in those communications and be flexible and pivot mid-communication if you sense that something's not going well, um, are skills that are just going to be super critical to us um, as stewards. You know, I find, uh, Jillian, as we go through this list of skills that stewards need, you know, we went to pharmacy school to become pharmacists. We went and learned about infectious diseases. 
And now as an antimicrobial steward, I find that there's almost nothing that I don't also need to know about, you know, implementation, science, the social aspects of how people interact, um, organizational culture and priorities and quality. And so I really feel like antimicrobial stewards almost need to be jack of all trades to some extent, which honestly is really overwhelming. And as I was reflecting on some of the different aspects and, and um, some of the content that was presented at ID Week, one of the themes I also saw was burnout. And burnout was discussed a lot, not just for pharmacists, but also for physicians and infection preventionists. And I thought that was an important theme that we also need to observe as we think about all these amazing things that we need to do. We also need to make time for ourselves and have that work-life balance. Absolutely. We're just casually asking us, like you said, to be masters of the infectious diseases content and of pharmacotherapy and pharmacokinetics. Oh, and by the way, we need you to present this information perfectly and we need you to get along with everyone and understand the interworkings of a C-suite and the hospital and, and, and. Um, so I think that's definitely a huge um, point that not only came up within you know some of the stewardship sessions, but also the social media sessions as well. So knowing when to check in with yourself, understanding your limits and understanding that Rome wasn't built in a day. So resistance is not going to probably be solved in a day either. And, you know, focusing on the good that you can do, um, even if it's not all of the good that needs to be done is something that's going to be huge in order for us to continue to be effective um, over the time of a career. One of the, one of the most important um, lessons that I ever learned from one of my mentors is that you need to accept that you physically can't do everything. And you don't need to accept that once you have to actually accept that every single day, because every day is a new day. And I still struggle with that every day as well. It's really a challenge in this field because there's just so much we can do. Totally. S slow yeses. Get there slowly. I think along the lines of, uh, you know, taking things a day at a time and, and slow yeses brings us to the next session that we'll be covering, which is titled Influencing Antibiotic Stewardship Activities, The Devil is in the Details isn't it always? Uh, this session had three different speakers and we'll present it in a little bit of a reverse order. So I will be focusing specifically on this segment by Dr. George Nelson, uh, who is an associate professor of medicine and medical director of stewardship at Vanderbilt Medical Center. Now I will start with the bias that I think Dr. Nelson is one of the greatest clinicians on planet earth to the level that if I ever need infectious diseases care, and I mean something as simple as single dose cefazolin for surgical prophylaxis or like treatment of uncomplicated cystitis where I would definitely live. I still would prefer that he is airlifted to my bedside to be involved in my care. Uh, he's a true steward and one of the most, if not the most pharmacy friendly physician I've ever had the privilege of caring for humans with. Um, so I am a big Dr. Nelson fan enough of that. Uh, his specific session was titled how to win friends and influence appropriate antibiotic use. So he was literally right on brand with the session that Tim, uh, just kicked us off summarizing. He aptly began his talk with a disclaimer that this session will uh, be raising questions to consider rather than forcing one specific answer, which feels so on brand for anything related to stewardship, if you ask me. Uh, so he started off by going through that um, stewardship best practices are becoming more defined and evolving through organizational standards like the core elements from the CDC, CMS requirements, et cetera. Um, however, the actual science behind implementation of these resources is a little bit more murky. He identified two main problems uh, in this vein, one being that interventions aren't always well described in enough detail in these studies, and two being that terminology is inconsistent from study to study. He then identified some common barriers to ASP, which should sound pretty familiar uh, at this point in the talk, the first of which being decision-making autonomy. Uh, so who is making the decision, especially with trainees, uh, this becomes even more clouded. Limitations of evidence and data, such as guidelines, again, not accounting for the complexities of every patient in front of you, the culture of hierarchy, and then fourth, the complexity of healthcare delivery, both within competing priorities and workflow among different groups within the hospital, as well as the multidisciplinary involvement. He shared a quote uh, from a study in CID back in 2011 that I think sums it all up pretty well. The antimicrobial prescribing behavior of healthcare professionals is governed by a set of cultural rules. Uh, sometimes when I have residents on rotation, we even have to jokingly clarify, wait, you just said culture. Are we talking about the micro cultures here or are we talking about the human cultures here? So I think Dr. Nelson is spot on with his call for uh, subsequently using more behavioral science training in stewardship education. 
Uh, he actually re-emphasized this during the Q&A session, stating that incorporation of behavioral sciences in training is a really fantastic idea so that we as stewards um, in after training or even during training aren't just figuring this out as we go, making those mistakes and navigating those complex conversations um, sort of in the dark. Um, if we receive training from people like microbiology colleagues, he asked, why shouldn't we have sociologists and psychologists come in and help coach us so that when we go to have those complex human interactions, um, we aren't just figuring it out in real time. Uh, while that would be an ideal solution, it can also feel like a pretty big place to start. So I did want to talk about some other next steps that felt a little bit more manageable and not as high level of a solution. Um, first, which is understanding current behavior. I think as stewards, we can all emphasize that this is huge, especially if you're transitioning to a new facility or you're a resident transitioning as an, into a new practitioner, uh, taking time not to have the solution to all of the problems, but just to observe the problems for what they are non-judgmentally and learn the culture at your facility is going to be key. Um, this becomes even more important when talking about concern or the fear that Tim, you mentioned, uh, in Dr. Heil's session. So, um, this is actually paralleled by a component of narrows reflecting that emotion that you see and saying, you know what, I've lost sleep over a patient like this before too. Uh, that was one of my favorite parts of the narrows. He also mentioned something called CAP surveys, which are knowledge, attitude, and practice surveys. Uh, he completed one with uh, Tara, formerly Tara Lines, now Tara Harpenau, SIDP member and ID resident before me, uh, that was published in Itchy in 2018 um, that actually informed their pre-implementation messaging of a lot of the stewardship interventions that they were able to subsequently perform. Uh, this led to regular benchmarked comparative team data feedback sent to the teams, um, increased engagement refinement, and uh, providers were actually welcoming intervention from stewardship. So talk about a 180 from offering that unsolicited advice to teams saying, hey, where's my stewardship guidance for the day? Um, and getting to experience a little bit of uh, that culture shift uh, while I was a resident there, I can attest, uh, starting by learning the culture and then working within the confines of what you're working with is going to be huge. So kind of working with, um, going with the grain instead of against it, so to speak. Um, I think of people like Julie Simziak, who spoke in that prior session, um, and I think it would be incredible to incorporate some sort of formal training into those stewardship programs. Uh, what do you guys think about uh, that possibility? I, I love it too, but I do recall in pharmacy school, like you would learn all the sciences and then they try to bring the social science stuff into things and you would be like, but I need more chemistry and I need more therapeutics. And, um, I, I, you know, maybe things have changed from back in the day when I was in pharmacy school, but I, I totally recall that part. And, um, even though now in being practicing all these years, knowing how important the social skills are and the social science skills are. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have any good ideas about how to incorporate it. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, one of the things I love about ID Week is it really validates a lot of the things that I think about, and it, it gives me a chance to see that other people are thinking about those exact same things and they're struggling with them. Um, I do think that it would be incredibly valuable to have basic social science training for antimicrobial stewardship programs, particularly pointed case-based approach type of uh, educational sessions. Um, when we interact with other individuals, it's really important that we try to meet them on their level, that we communicate in a way that has language that they understand, and that we can get them on board with similar values so that we can really build that team and move forward with our initiatives. Um, so I really do uh, believe that's uh, important. I'm going to pivot into something um, that is not what no one would consider very understandable, which is statistics. Um, so in that devil is in the details session, um, there was another speaker, Dr. Matt Getz, and he talked about MRSA nasal swabs. And this is such a good example of how details are important. So um, a question I get a lot from learners and uh, other healthcare team members is why can't we use MRSA na nasal swabs for non-respiratory infections, right? Like a skin and soft tissue infection, for example. So in this session, Matt Getz or Dr. Getz watched us through the statistics, cue scary music, um, explaining this performance. So as we've seen with pneumonia, the negative predictive value, which is the prediction that the culture is gonna be negative if the MRSA nasal swab is negative, is really high, like in the high 90%, above 95%. 
Um, and this is generally speaking because negative predictive value is dependent upon the prevalence of disease. So this is different than like a sensitivity or specificity of a test. It's like the odds of having disease is what negative predictive value or not having it um, is what negative predictive value teaches us. Okay, so now Dr. Getz introduced one minus the negative predictive value. What is that? It's the post-test probability that the culture will be positive even if you have a negative swab result, right? So this is a number you don't want to be high. You have a negative swab, you wanna trust that you're gonna have a negative culture, but one minus negative predictive value is the probability that you got a negative swab, but the culture was positive. Okay, that number is also dependent on the prevalence of MRSA. So what he said was, um, and what he did is he showed us the math associated um, what is the prevalence of MRSA associated with a min minus negative predictive value less than five or 10%, meaning at what prevalence of disease would we assume a five or 10% risk that this test could incorrectly lead us to de-escalate anti-MRSA coverage based on a ne negative nasal swab. And so when it comes to pneumonia, a 5% risk of being wrong like having a positive respiratory culture for MRSA despite a negative MRSA swab happens at a prevalence that's greater than the prevalence of MRSA in the studied populations. So we can feel confident using this test for respiratory infections. And I'll quote him and he said, where the prevalence of disease is low, a negative MRSA swab would be reassuring that anti-MRSA therapy is not warranted. Okay. But when it comes to skin and soft tissue infections, as we all know, this is a mixed bag of, of things in skin and soft tissue infections, right? So purulent infections have a higher prevalence of MRSA versus non-purulent infections, but the studies evaluating MRSA nasal swabs included varying amounts of these different types of infections, purulent or, or non-purulent. Um, and it led to a range of MRSA prevalence in the studies that he reported in the session between three and 33%. So the 33% were the, were the studies that included mainly purulent infections. So as a result, the prevalence, I'm gonna quote his slide here, the prevalence of MRSA in studied populations is not consistently less than the prevalence at which post-test probability is less than five to 10%. So this means that the reliability of a negative nary swab to predict a negative culture in a skin and soft tissue patient is not as high, and we cannot safely use this information to determine de-escalation of MRSA therapy. So the bottom line is, what I usually tell people, is that the test performs differently based on prevalence, and in respiratory infections, it performs well because the prevalence of MRSA is low. But in skin and soft tissue infections, it doesn't perform as well because the prevalence of MRSA is a little bit higher and a lot more varied. Another session that has been, has I've really been thinking about this one a lot. This one's been keeping me up at night and, and it comes from the controversies in antimicrobial stewardship and specifically Megan Jeffrey's talk on de-escalation. So I'm gonna give you the formal title, which was antibiotic de-escalation, killing bugs or killing time, which, um, which I mentioned was part of the symposium on controversies in antimicrobial stewardship, which was presented by our very own Aaron McCreary, who talked about diagnostic stewardships, uh, Megan Jeffries, and then Allison Tribble, who talked about handshake stewardship. So in this session, Megan made the case that de-escalation is simply an exercise in futility. She pulled data, um, including one of my favorite studies, the Tizome study from Barnes Jewish Medical Center, um, which found that every additional day of anti-pseudomonal antibiotic therapy contributes a 4% increased risk of antibiotic resistance. And she opined uh, that this is probably not a phenomenon related to the anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams alone, that it was, uh, that extra duration is a problem no matter what. Um, and then she called, there's this French study by Leon and colleagues that evaluated continuation versus de-escalation of antibiotics. This is a multi-center, non-blinded, randomized trial in patients with severe sepsis. And the bottom line from that was that there was no difference in mortality among the two groups, whether they continued therapy or de-escalated therapy. Um, and then interestingly, superinfection with the same index pathogen occurred in 66% or four out of six folks in the 
continued therapy group versus seven out of 16 patients or 44% in the de-escalated group, meaning that the people who had de-escalated therapy uh, were super infected with a different pathogen. Um, and raising the question of what is the impact on microbiome. So her final coup de gras um, was that microbiome impact, which she argued using um, Vanessa Stevens' 2011 paper on C. diff risk factors. So this is when, when C. diff was uh, clostridium back in those days. Um, and so what, what Vanessa showed in that study, again, using VA data, which was, was among the risk factors for C. diff, one of them was getting multiple antibiotics. And so Megan's point was, why do you got to switch antibiotics? Why do you have to go from piperacillin, tazobactam to ceftriaxone, for example? Why not just complete the shortest course possible with piperacillin, tazobactam and not um, quote unquote deescalate? And she used, there's another paper that's really nice done by Amira Bolodi in 2019 and published in Jack that talks about the microbiome pressure exerted by the various classes of antibiotics in which um, bacteria they increase and which ones they decrease and select out for. And so Megan's point was, if you expose somebody to two different antibiotics like piperacillin, tazobactam, and ceftriac then ceftriaxone, you are exerting selective pressure in multiple different ways and alterating, altering the microbiome even further than if you just picked one antibiotic and stuck with it. Um, and de-escalation is such a huge component of what we do as antimicrobial stewards. I mean, this is when you look at cultures and you tailor therapy to the culture result. This is just like a fundamental, just my mind is blown by what she was saying. I see what she's saying, but I'm not sure if I can fully accept it yet in my heart of hearts as an antibiotic steward that not de-escalating um, is something I should pursue and that it is an exercise in futility. What do you guys think? I also found this session extremely interesting and, and this is not something that I've reviewed in this level of detail. So I really appreciate the effort Dr. Jeffers has put into that presentation. Um, I, I do spend a lot of time talking to people about what is broad spectrum? You know, what is your definition? And I, I believe there's at least one uh, you know, Delphi assessment on, on this topic out there uh, for the listeners are interested, um, but I find that I get many different answers in terms of what is quote unquote broad spectrum. And I also even debate, should we even be using the term de-escalation? Is that an appropriate, is it an accurate term? Is targeted therapy maybe a better term? Um, should we categorize it uh, better as we go through that, those motions? And, and so I really appreciated it as well. Um, what did you think, Jillian? I think to best capture my thoughts, I should admit that in the middle of my notes of this session, I have the words now for the spicy part in the middle, um, because I thought she did such a cool job sort of building to this, you know, controversial assertion that this is an exercise in futility. Um, and while I think a lot of our listeners um, have definitely experienced that feeling of futility, uh, one of the things that um, I really liked about what she did is she framed it in light of you know, we shouldn't just give up on, on de-escalation or streamlining or, or whatever term uh, you want to use. Um, we should just use that time doing other things that we know are going to give us a little bit more bang for our buck. Uh, something like IV to oral transitions, something like shortening durations. Um, again, emphasizing that shortening durations is largely the most important thing we could possibly do to improve outcomes uh, and prevent resistance development. Uh, she also mentioned allergy stewardship as another you know, worthy use of our time. So um, it was uh, a little bit easier of a pill to swallow when I was reminded like, ah, yes, we have other things that we could be using this time for. But um, yes, at first I was like, man, I just love the way she presented the whole thing. Um, and uh, I was spicy. I liked it. I see is such a good word for that. I mean, it, it's, it's now a couple months later, and I still really think about this as I'm teaching and as I'm working on my day-to-day -day work of, you know, how relevant is this? Um, so yeah, thank you, Megan, for, for this existential question that you have posed to us antimicrobial stewards. When we look at our, our, our jobs as stewards and, and what we do, I think we can kind of put uh, different elements into baskets, and then we can analyze those baskets and say, you know, why do I do this? What is the impact of it? How do I measure it? How can I do a better job with it? 
And sometimes I come back to that um, Albert Einstein quote of insanity, that it's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Um, and I think that there are a lot of other antimicrobial stewards out there who might feel the same way where it's Groundhog Day and you're calling for the, the 5,000th time, can we please discontinue vancomycin? Um, and, I, and I appreciate this conversation about where do you put the, your efforts so they have the most value? And it, it would blow my mind if de-escalation is not one of those things we should be focusing on. Wonderful. Okay, now we're gonna pivot to one last segment before we sign off, which is I Feel Nerdy. And I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So this year, ID Week included over 150 sessions, about 200 or so abstracts, and over 1,400 posters. So it's a massive amount of content, but I want to know for each of you, what happens after ID Week? I mean, this, this ID Week is not unique to any of the other ID Weeks. There's always this much content, but what, what do you take away from this meeting? I always feel a little bit when I leave uh, ID week or really conferences in general, the way that you would feel coming home from a uh, summer camp where you would be really high on whatever activity you had just done. You know, you come back from, from dance camp, sports camp, whatever it is. And you're like, mom, I'm going to the Olympics. My life goals have been redefined. Um, and I always leave ID week feeling a little bit the same way. Uh, so timing wise, it came at a really great time. I think this year uh, down in Florida, which is where Tim and I uh, both try to keep things under control. Uh, we were in the middle of sort of the worst wave um, of COVID at the time. And so Tim, you mentioned burnout earlier. Um, I like to call it uh, being crispy. I was crispy at the time of ID week. So I think uh, just these sessions where you don't always leave with answers, but you leave understanding that even sort of the, the who's who of stewardship are dealing with the same issues as you can feel so refreshing um, and uh, allows me to remember we're all fighting the good fight. We're all going through those same conversations um, and that it's a, a worthy battle to keep, you know, pushing forward with, even if it uh, is exhausting. Uh, so that's kind of take one. Uh, take two, again, having all of the content online uh, gives me an immense amount of respect for how much effort goes into Heidi Week. There are so many things uh, that you could look into and learn from. So I do love going back, not only looking at these sessions again, um, but digging through the posters and getting research ideas for future resident projects. This might be something that could be useful at my facility? Could I use my resources better if we implemented X, Y, and Z? So um, definitely some hashtag inspiration coming as well, but uh, it feels like we just left ID camp is kind of how I would summarize uh, how I always feel when I leave these types of meetings. What about you, Tim? Yeah, I feel totally hyped up whenever I get attached to any of these meetings, especially ID week, which is just an enormous, wonderful meeting. I mean, of course, SIDP's uh, meeting is, is my go-to number one, you know, being in the ID pharmacy world, um, but leaving ID week, it reminds me of why I love infectious diseases and why I'm obsessed with antimicrobial stewardship. Um, it reminds me also, or, or it allowed me to identify that Twitter really is so valuable. I mean, a lot of the people that were presenting at ID week, I knew who they were. A lot of the content they presented, I knew because of the papers. I attended some of the COVID sessions and I rarely found information that was new because it's really out there on, you know, on social media. And so it identified to me the power of social media for following current infectious diseases during a pandemic. And that was really nice and ensuring. And also, I think we touched upon it earlier, um, but um, seeing that other people are battling the same battles as me also helps for my mental sanity. Um, in addition to that, I felt very inspired by the presenters and the researchers. I know what it goes, I know what goes into getting those sessions going, uh, preparing those presentations, giving those presentations. I really think that it's important that we set an example for other people. And so when I see, you know, Dr. Jeffers or Dr. Heil up there on the podium, I think, wow, like, you know, I can do that. Maybe my, my trainees can do that. Maybe my colleagues can do it. And it makes me want to participate in future ID weeks. The other thing is I really would love to have the opportunity to, to connect some of the people I know with others um, that are attending ID week. So I was honestly quite sad about the virtual aspect. I think it's the right decision. You know, we need to respect COVID and make sure we don't get people sick if we can avoid it. Um, but I, I really would love to try to connect some of the people that I know um, from South Florida with the connections that I've made, you know, around the world through social media. Um, and there was one session even at a, uh, in person ID week um, that I attended in Washington, D.C., 
where Carlos Del Rio, which I only knew through social media, I actually followed him down the hallway for a little bit. And I don't think he ever knew this happened, um, but I, I almost touched him just for the fact of saying, I, you know, I, I kind of met him in real life, IRL, right? Um, but I really uh, would, I, I desire to um, be able to interact with other humans at conferences like this. Uh, and I look forward to that coming back. Awesome. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to co-sign on that hashtag inspiration which is totally what I get out of ID Week. And also on what you said, Tim, which is the in, in real life experience um, that I really, really miss. Um, and, and lastly, that the plug on Twitter, like for me, this COVID has been the first time I joined social media or Twitter specifically and how much I've learned and gotten information out of um, that platform is just really mind blowing to me, which is something you've known for a long time Tim, as evidenced by your fantastic work in the social media space. I want to thank you both for joining me here on Breakpoints. The ID Week on-demand content will be available on the platform until December 31st. So maybe that's one way to ring in the new year should COVID variants shut things down again. I hope not. We'll see. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. I have been your host, Zara Kasamali Escobar, and our featured speakers have been Tim Gauthier and Jillian Hayes. Breakpoints was created by Julianne, Julianne Justo, Aaron McCreary, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Rachel Britt and Jillian Hayes. It was edited by Sasha Premaj, Rania L. Lababidi, Julie Harding, and Krutika Mediwala Hornbeth. Our production team includes Anna Zhao and Veronica Zafonte. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SADP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future. <laughs>